0: This is Open to Hope Radio, featuring Dr. Gloria Horsley and her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley, coming to you on behalf of the Open to Hope Foundation, dedicated to those who are looking for hope after loss. Now here's Dr. Gloria
1: Welcome to the Open to Hope Show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my co-host, Dr. Heidi Horsley. Good morning, Heidi, from California.
2: Good morning, Mom. I'm here in New York. It's 1 o'clock.
1: Ah, so Hello. sometimes people don't realize that we're bicoastal. They think we're together uh, when we're in the studio. Well, I kind of had a sad thing happen this uh, this week, right?
2: Yes, I found it very sad. Um, a lot of you out there know that my brother and cousin died together in a car accident. When they were both 17, Matthew was driving Scott was a passenger, and my aunt Belle, Matthew's mother, died on Sunday, two days ago.
1: Yeah. So, and
2: her and my mom were there. I was just gonna say, mom, you and Aunt Belle were very close, and you were more like sisters growing up because she was what your first cousin
1: right she was my first cousin my folks had a store an appliance store and her folks had a restaurant right next door to each other and we played together in the stores and snuck down in the basement in the restaurant where her mother dipped chocolates and would go into the freezer and uh, steal chocolates or whatever (laughs) anyway we had a wonderful time growing up in a small town together and then we had our children die together as adults so uh, we had an incredibly strong bond and we always used to kid around and say if you the boys send them home. So, um, yeah. And she had children your age too, Heidi, right? And so the kids have a a whole connection.
2: Yep. She had five kids, four, four surviving. And I remember what she said to me when she said, you know, the last thing that Matthew said to me as he and Scott were leaving that night to go to a movie before they died was See You at Dawn. And I honestly believe it is Dawn for her now. And she is with Matthew and Scott. And it is an amazing, bittersweet feeling for me to know that they're all together. She was an incredible person, and she will be greatly missed on this earth. But I'm glad that where she is right now, she's with people that love
1: her. Absolutely. Well, Heidi, wow, thank you for that, and uh, we love Bill. Well, Heidi, introduce our guest today. We've got a great guest, and what I love about this guest today is my feelings of loss right now. And she inspires me at this very moment to know that no matter what happens, that you can go on. So talk a little bit about Terry. And by the way, she's one of the authors for Open to Hope. So we hope you'll go on there and uh, read some of her material.
2: Absolutely, Ma. I am so excited to have Terry on. And like you said, it's it's really a great time for me to have her on because we have our own multiple losses that we have not only survived through but thrived through. And Terry is someone that knows loss so incredibly deeply at its core and she really is an example of how resilient the human spirit is. Terry Jones Brady is a strong and deeply spiritual person, and both of her daughters were born with cystic fibrosis. Terry began an unfathomable journey and survived not two but three deaths. After the deaths of her daughters, her husband died by suicide. She grieved, searched for understanding, and finally found love and happiness again. And Terry is the author of Mosaic Heart Reshaping the Shards of a Shattered Life, and she is also one of our Open to Hope authors. Welcome to the show, Terry. Thank you, Heidi. Thank you very much, and my condolences to
3: you and to Gloria, to both of you on your recent loss. Well, thank
1: you. Talk a little bit about your losses with Heather and Holly. They both had cystic fibrosis, and uh, Heather died younger than Holly, right? Holly was in her 20s, and Heather was how old?
3: Heather was 12 when she died. Right. So, actually, she was my first daughter, Heather, was diagnosed with this disease when she was just eight months old, um, and then she lived 12 years, which was the expected lifespan at that time. She died in 1982. Now, fortunately, with new treatments and so on, um, anticipated lifespan of an individual with cystic fibrosis is much longer. You know, they're living into early adulthood and even middle age, and it's just... Thrilling to see, although I'm sorry that it didn't happen soon enough for my children. But anyway, she died at 12. And she died undergoing a procedure called a bronchial lavage, which is uh, under general anesthesia. The surgeon attempts to clean out her lungs. Cystic fibrosis, as you probably know, is a disease that affects the respiratory system and also the digestive system, and so gradually the lungs just. Are destroyed as time goes by. Um, finally, they can't breathe without oxygen, and then they can't breathe at all, and it's quite a horrible thing to see. But in the meantime, these girls that I had, and most of the cystic fibrosis patients that I've been acquainted with, try to live lives that are as normal as possible in between hospitalizations and in between physical therapy treatments at home.
1: Boy, it's such a commitment. I've been, I been—I was so fascinated with your book and your telling about what you and your husband went through to take care of these girls and how special they were and how wonderful and how brave. And that's one of the things you talk about in the book is uh, that the girls allowed you to do these treatments. And, and uh, I remember I happened to have a nursing background doing the... Yeah.
3: <laughs> Postural
1: drainage, yeah, cupping the hands and and <laughs> yeah, postural drainage, you'd have people lay over the edge of the bed and and yeah. uh, and do what we called cupping uh, on their backs. and and that the girls, yeah, that the girls let you be that be part of their whole process and were so cooperative. And do uh, you talk about it so well in the book? It's just uh, were you able to do the book because you journaled? Is that? I mean, because it's so uh, complete and so full and so rich and interesting. Um, was that because of your journaling?
3: Well, I started writing. That's how my writing began was as journaling. You know, as you, you and I talked before the show, I initially set out to be an actress, and then I got married, and then I had children who had very demanding conditions, and so I sort of gave up my theatrical ambitions. And I began journaling um, when I was pregnant with my second daughter, actually, not really realizing at the time that journaling was a technique that was widely used in the psychiatric therapeutic community to you know to deal with stress and with loss and with grief and so on. But my journaling kind of evolved into first poetry and I wrote poetry and, um, and then I began writing more and more and began attending writing writers' groups, but I really be- didn't begin writing seriously until actually after all my losses.
1: I'm really interested in the fact that you said that you didn't know that the therapeutic community was suggesting writing. Hey, guess what? That's where the therapeutic community learns to do their stuff, is they look at people like you who have successfully dealt with losses, and what did you do? Isn't that right, Heidi?
3: Absolutely, yes. Do that, definitely. Well, I'm, I'm sure that somebody thought of this before I did, but I just began writing thoughts, and particularly early in the morning. Um, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you're sort of in that liminal halfway place between being asleep and awake, that's a really good time to sit down and get your thoughts on paper. And the beautiful thing about journaling is that you don't have to worry about um, all the things that English teachers worry about, like punctuation and capitalization and sentence fragments and yada, yada, You can just write it down. You can you can write how angry you are. You can just write whatever you know. You can be creative. So I began to do that, and then it began. It became habitual with me. And For 26 years, actually, I lived with um, my children from t- it was 26 years from the time my oldest daughter was diagnosed through her death to the death of my younger daughter that was 26 so,
2: years so, so Terry, when Heather, I know that Heather died at 12, and how old yeah. was Holly when Heather died?
3: She was seven. She was four and, and, and a half years. She, she
2: was your only surviving child at that point. Right. They were four and a half okay. years
3: apart, so she was seven um and her sister was twelve and
1: Holly was
3: holly was twenty two when she died twenty two so okay I'm so grateful that I had her for the length of time i did um she actually had um she had a pretty good life, i think for a child with a with a chronic illness holly uh, heather I'm sorry, the older one was always quite frail and um, was homebound a lot, although she did attend school because she liked to attend school. And my husband and I um, decided very early on in the girls' lives that we would not treat them as hothouse flowers, that we would encourage them to get out and live and do as much as they felt they were capable of doing, I mean, within reason, you know. So we let them do things, and we let them live Um, because,
1: well,
3: I felt, and I still do feel, that life is meant to be lived full out, you know. I I love
1: that. (laughs) Life is meant to be lived full out. Heidi, I interrupted you. Did you want to say something?
2: Uh, No, I just wanted to know if, this is so interesting to me, I just wanted to know if Terry started journaling right after Heather died and if that was one of the things that helped her to transform her life. I mean, was the journal, or did the journaling not begin until after Holly died?
3: I remember doing, uh, beginning the journaling seriously when I was expecting Holly, when I was pregnant with Holly, which was, um, she was born in May of 1974, so it was around that time. Um, but immediately after Heather died, I had, you know, I was talking, I was uh, talking earlier about how there's this time between asleep and awake where I think things bubble up from the subconscious. Um, and anyway, I was lying here in bed and Heather had been dead weeks, maybe a couple months, after it hadn't been long. And there was an Emily Dickinson poem that I just loved. Um, and it, the, it, the Emily Dickinson poem begins, after great pain, a formal feeling comes, oh, I don't remember it all now, but, um, anyway, it goes on to say, this is the hour of lead remembered if outlived as freezing persons recollect the snow. Well, thinking about that poem, Lying There in My Bed, Hour of Lead made me think of a book which um, anne Lindbergh had published, and it was a book of her journals and letters. And the title of the book was Hour of Lead, Hour of Gold, or maybe it was Hour of Gold, Hour of Lead, the other way around. And I was lying there, I was just thinking, I've got to get that book. Um, so this was back in the early 80s. I just cannot wait for the library to open And as soon as I could, I went to the library, checked out that book, Hour of Gold, Hour of Lead. And it was Anne-Marie Lindbergh's journaling and letter writing. Um, First, the Hour of Gold section was about the early years of her marriage to Charles Lindbergh. And, you know, how handsome he was in his aviator suit and uh, how happy they were sitting on the balcony eating blueberry muffins for breakfast, blah, blah. And then the Hour of Lead part was after their baby had been kidnapped and all the horrible feelings that she went through, and I was so astonished at this time, because remember, at this time, I had not done any grief work, really, to speak of, but she talked about the kinds of feelings, both physical and emotional, that I was having. For example, the feeling that you are aware that you literally feel a pain in your heart, and I have uh, talked to other people who have experienced this as well. And then this huge fear that everyone else is going to be taken away from you also. And, well, the other well, and in thing your case,
2: the fear the fear was, was legitimate because here you were grieving the death of hadar and knowing that Holly also had the same disease as fibrosis. No,
3: exactly. Okay. Exactly. The other thing that she talked to that was so important to me because it was what I was feeling but had never... Talk to another person who shared it, was this feeling that after a loss like this, you are somehow different from the rest of the world. I mean, right. to lose a child is something that is almost inconceivable to a parent, or probably to a non-parent, to anybody who hasn't experienced it. You just A person who hasn't been through this will just stand on the outside looking in at your life and thinking, how in the world can you endure that? And I don't ask yeah. the ca- same question. And it's like suddenly you're living on another planet.
1: So, yeah, exactly. I agree. And then you went on to lose Holly, and, and then you went on to your husband. You know, I, I was, uh, kills himself, uh, dies by suicide, and you know, um, one of the things I was thinking about is how um, you're both artistic people and your husband, I was kind of laughing, was when you were talking about how they had a memorial service for him at the park and everybody turned out in the, the whole region and all that because he was in community theater. And you talked about him wearing a beret at one time and that kind of thing. And I thought this man, <laughs> this man was too sensitive to live on in this world with, with everything that happened. I know he became an alcoholic and yeah. you know there was a long decline and a road. So uh, so we've got to move on with this because people are going to want to know, how did you deal with Heather, Holly, and then Sarah. your beloved husband dying? And and one of the, I just picked out some quotes from your book that I like very much, and one of them is, one thing is for sure, if you live on the planet long enough, your heart will be broken. That is so true, but yours was broken really early. How did you do it?
3: Well, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, she- I thought about this, and I thought about how can I delineate specific strategies. When I was writing my book, I thought maybe I needed to do this. Maybe I needed to outline strategies for living through grief. Well, let me tell you, that's not easy to pinpoint because it's not a cut-and-dry process, and it's not linear. I mean, we spiral up and down and in and out of the grieving. There are levels of grieving and I think there are levels of our understanding of death. I remember in a hospital waiting room, and this was when my daughter Holly, my, oh, my second daughter, was, was um, in her, during her last days. And this was in 1996. She was 22. And she had uh, had a bilateral lung transplant. She'd been listed you know, on the organ transplant list, and organs became available for her. Um, And I don't want to cry. (laughs) I won't. But at any rate, so she had the double, the bilateral lung transplant, and we were elated because this is what we had waited for. This is what we thought would give her a new life. And um, she would get her new lungs, uh, you know, and get on with her life.
1: So, and, you, and you tell yeah, you tell a lot about that in the book with great description. It's great. And then she doesn't make it, right? right. And she right. The, dies the, then. Yeah.
3: The surgeons came out. They came out early in the morning after an all-night surgery and said, oh, she's doing well. You can see her in a few minutes. Well, a few hours went by, and they came out, and they said, she's taking a turn for worse. And we don't know why, but she's rejecting the lungs. And so they put her into a medically induced coma, um, you know, to give her the lungs a chance to rest and to prevent agitation on her part. And she lived she was in a coma for twelve days and then they unplugged her from the life support equipment because well, that's another story. But anyway, um during those twelve days, you know, it was it was it was just well I just it's a time that I describe in my book, a very dark time. And one day we were sitting in the hospital waiting room, um, very aptly named because nothing happens but waiting for news of one kind or another, and out of nowhere, I don't know where it came from, but I suddenly just, I don't know if it was a moan or a scream, but I screamed out, please don't take my daughter away from me. I will go insane. And here I was in this room full of strangers and also family members and friends, Um, and it just came out of me, out of nowhere. And my husband rushed to comfort me, and his sister rushed to comfort me, and other people just stared and probably felt, you know, embarrassed and helpless. But that's an example of the immediacy of grief.
1: Right, yeah. It sounded like that was kind of a release for you, too. That's where it came from. And I think you're right. That's why it's so hard to describe to people how you do go through the process of grooming and recovery, of releasing. When do you release and how? But uh, talk about your little analogy at the end, which I liked uh, about being deep-rooted like trees because I think that's really, really uh, important okay. um, there. Let's
3: see. Oh, wait, would you like me to just read a little section then from the book
1: about... Uh, or you can just talk about it, okay. whichever. Okay.
3: Um. Yeah, I think that's in the early part of the book um, in
1: actually, oh, it's at the very end, oh, where I think okay. you talk about where you talk that just uh, why don't you just explain the analogy where okay. you felt that the trees had deep roots?
3: yeah, okay. well, um I said at some point in my life, and here I am reading, but I'll be quick, I learned not to make into catastrophes events that comprise living the life one is given, um Greece and tragedies bear. Can each respond like the deeply rooted old growth trees that surround my home. During hurricanes, blizzards, and ice storms, I've watched the trees oaks, beeches, maples, dogwoods, sweet gums, yellow poplars, hollies, pines, and cedars bend and bow but rarely break. Almost always after storms, they respond to the call of the sun's rays and the nurturance of spring rains growing taller and stronger every year. I stand as proof that the human spirit is capable of responding to suffering with just such resilience. Um, So I I think that's what you're referring
1: to. Absolutely, yeah, the resilience piece. I think that's really important. And and then uh, just to tell people to go on, you meet a a person and, and you fall in love and you get married and uh, You—it's uh, the end of the book of the things you do together. But you always take the girls with you and your husband. And I love the fact that the man you're married um, na- to now calls him his girls too, which is very sweet. And uh, tell people how to get a hold of your book and where you are on the web.
3: Okay. Um, yes, my—I um, have a website, and it is uh, www.terry—that's T-E-R-R-Y Jones-Brady. dot com. Um, the name of the book is a mosaic heart, as you said, reshaping the shards of a shattered life. Um, let's see. The book is available at Amazon um, in hard copy or Kindle, um, and local bookstores also in other parts of the country have ordered them. Um, I just made a contact with Barnes and Noble. I'm I, I'm not a good marketer, but I just contacted <laughs> Barnes and Noble, and um, I'm going to be um, available through them shortly.
1: Um, oh, great. So Wonderful. In area,
3: I'll just put in a little plug for some of the local stores. If you're in my area, which is the Hampton Road section of Virginia, we're at uh, Prince Books in downtown Norfolk and at Shooting Star Gallery out here in Suffolk. But... On my website or Amazon. um, uh, Or you
1: can also find you on opentohope.com, and you will be on our book site there, too. So, Terry, thank you so much for being on the show today, and thank you for all your courage and all your sharing. And I would say to people, get the book, because there are just tons of uh, wonderful little insights in this book. It is a compelling story. So thanks a lot for being on.
3: Well, thank you both so very much.
2: Thank you, Terry.
1: You're welcome. (laughs) It was great having Terry on today, right?
2: Absolutely. And and this could have been a longer show. I mean, we only have 20 minutes, but, you know, she's had so much loss and it's so complex. But, you know, at the end of the day, what, what my takeaway is, is that she's transformed her loss and that she still has joy and still has hope, despite the fact that both of her children, her only children and her husband have died. She's now living her life fully and she's living it for herself and for them.
1: I want to just close with a quote that I liked from her book. It said, at some point in my life, I learned not to make into catastrophes events that compromise living the life that one is given. Thanks for listening to the show today, and please visit us at opentohope.com.
0: You've been listening to Open to Hope Radio